Welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, the show where we talk about those historical figures you've probably heard of, but probably don't know too much about. I'm your host, Connor Boadelson. Today we're going to, quite fittingly, the land of winter, considering that at the time of this recording, it's currently snowing outside. The land of winter, the place where every history buff knows you should never invade a Vade during the winter. That's right. We're going to Russia, where today we're going to talk about Ivan the Third. No, not Ivan the Terrible, who most of you probably have heard of, but probably the lesser known of the two, Ivan the Great, the grandfather of Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Third was born to Vasily II on the 22nd of January, 1440. Since his father was blinded during his imprisonment by one of the region's conets during his war for power, he was styled as his father's co-ruler during the late 1450s until his ascension to the throne and acquisition of absolute power on the 14th of April, 1462. Ivan's rule is marked by what many historians call the Gathering of the Russian Lands, in which Ivan brought the various independent duchies of the different Rurikid princes under the direct control of the Grand Duchy of Moscow, leaving the various princes and their posterity without royal titles or land inheritance. And this is incredibly essential to his grandsons, Ivan the Terrible's consolidation of the Russian region into the Russian state that we all know of today. So his first efforts in doing this was a war with the Republic of Novgorod, which was a northern district of the Golden Horde, and fought a series of wars stretching back to at least the reign of Dmitry Donskoy. These wars were not very new to Moscow and were fought over various regions, from religious to political sovereignty, and, and even over Moscow's efforts to seize land in the northern Davina region. However, alarmed at the growing po power of Moscow under Ivan III, Novgorod had begun negotiations with the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Rus in hopes of placing itself under the protection of Kazimir IV, the King of Poland and the Grand Prince of Lithuania, a would-be alliance that was going to be proclaimed by the Moscow rulers as an act of apostasy from orthodoxy, mainly because the Polish king was Catholic while the Grand Duchy of Moscow and Novgorod were both orthodox. Ivan took the field against Novgorod in 1470, and after his generals had twice defeated the forces of the Republic, both at the Battle of the Shalon River and on the Northern Davina, both in the summer of 1471, Novgorodians were forced to sue for peace, agreeing to abandon their overtures in Lithuania and to cede a considerable portion of their northern territories while paying an indemnity of 15,500 rubles. Now, it's important to note that the Battle of Shumon was actually a really decisive victory for Ivan, as it was a battle in which roughly 13,000 30,000 Novgorodian soldiers faced off against the force of 5,000 Muscovites, who prevailed solely because the 30,000 force was incredibly disorganized as it was caught by surprise. However, this number is supposedly inflated, according to many historians, simply because Novgorod did not have the population to support anywhere near an army of that size. And it's likely that the number of the Novgorodian force was inflated in order to boost the prestige of Ivan's victory. Ivan visited Novgorod several times in the next several years after their defeat, persecuting a number of pro-Lithuanian boyars and confiscating their lands. And in 1477, two, no two Novgorodian envoys, claiming to have been sent by the archbishops and the entire city, addressed Ivan in the public audience as Gozudar, meaning sovereign, instead of the usual Gospodin, which means sir. Ivan seized upon this as recognition of his sovereignty, and when the Novgorodians repudiated the envoys, one of them was killed, and several others of the pro-Moscow faction were killed with him. And they were forced to swore openly in front of the Moscow ambassadors that they would turn to Lithuania again, and he would march against them. Deserted by Kazimir, however, and surrounded on every side by the Moscow armies, which occupied major monasteries around the city, 
Novgorod ultimately recognized Ivan's direct rule over the city and its vast hinterland in a document signed and sealed by the Archbishop Fiolfil of Novgorod on the 15th of January, 1478. Ivan, following this, dispossessed Novgorod of more than four-fifths of its land, keeping half of it for himself and giving the other half to his allies. Subsequent revolts, though, by many locals in Novgorod from 1479 to 1488 were punished by the removal en masse of the richest and most ancient families of Novgorod to Moscow, Vyakta, and, uh, and various other northeastern Rus cities in order to remove them from a scene where they can really cause a hassle for Ivan III. The Archbishop Fiofil was also removed from Moscow for applauding against the Grand Prince. The rival Republic of Piskov owed the continuance of its own political existence to the readiness with which it assisted Ivan against its ancient enemy. But many of the other principalities of the Russian region were eventually absorbed by either conquest, purchase, or a marriage contract, such as the Principality of Yaroslav, which was absorbed in 1463, Rostov in 1474, Tver in 1485, and Vyatka in 1489. Ivan, however, refused to share many of his conquests with his brothers, something that would be an issue for them, and his subsequent interference with the internal politics of the inherited principalities involved him in several wars with his brothers, from which, through the princes were assisted by Lithuania, he would emerge victorious. Finally, we, would talk, we need to discuss Ivan's new rule of government, formally set forth in his last will to the effect that the domains of all his kinsfolk after deaths should pass directly to the reigning duke instead of reverting, as hitherto, to the prince's heirs, putting an end once and for all to the semi-independent princelings. This is probably the greatest step, well, the first step really as well, in the consolidation of power for Ivan and the creation of the autocratic system of government of the Russian state that Ivan the Terrible would come to govern over and what Russia would really become known for, being one of the most strong, one of the most absolute and one of the strongest monarchies in all of Europe. For all of you just joining us, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're talking about Ivan the Third or also known as Ivan the Great of the D Grand Duchy of Moscow. So we just got finished talking about his early consolidation of his reign and his early moves in the gathering of the Russian lands. So now we're going to go into talking about exactly the government that Ivan III ran. As I've mentioned, Ivan's government is really known for its more autocratic rule, his centralization of power around the monarchy, for which Russia would come to really be known for. So the character of government in the Grand Duchy of Moscow changed significantly under Ivan III, taking on a much new autocratic form. This was a natural consequence of the hegemony of Moscow over the other Vladimir Suzdal lands, but also to new imperial pretensions that have been appearing within the capital. After the fall of Constantinople, Orthodox canonists were inclined to regard the Grand Princes of Moscow, where the Orthodox Metropolitan of Kiev moved in 1325 after the Mongol invasions, as the successors of the Byzantine emperors, making the Grand Duchy of Moscow and Moscow itself the Third Rome, an idea of which Ivan really took up. And Ivan welcomed this idea and began to style himself Tsar in foreign correspondence. However, it's important to note he only styled himself as Tsar, and it would be his grandson Ivan the Terrible who would officially crown himself the first Tsar of all of Russia. Ivan's adoption of the idea of being the Third Rome as well as Tsar coincided with a change in the family circumstances of Ivan. After the death of his first first consort, Maria of Tver, in 1467, at the suggestion of Pope Paul II, who hoped thereby to bind Moscovy to the Holy See. Ivan III wedded Sophia Paleologina, 
daughter of Thomas Paleologos, the despot of Maria, who claimed the throne of Constantinople as the brother of Constantine XI, the last Byzantine emperor, who we talked about in our first week of history shouldn't be a mystery. However, this frustrated the Pope's hopes of reuniting the two faiths and the princess endorsed, as the princess endorsed Eastern Orthodoxy. Due to her family traditions being of Byzantium birth, she encouraged imperial ideas in the mind of her consort Ivan III, and it was through her influence that the ceremonious etiquette of Constantinople, along with the imperial double-headed eagle and all that it implied, was adopted by the court of Moscow. Now moving on to Ivan's heirs briefly, Ivan had a son with Mary of Tver, Ivan the Young, who would die in 1490, leaving his marriage with Helen of Moldavia and only child, Dmitri the grandson. However, the latter was crowned as successor by his grandfather on the 15th of February 1498. But later, Ivan would revert his decision in favor of Sophie, Sophia's elder son, Vasily, who was ultimately crowned co-regent with his father in 14, on the 14th of April 1502. And this decision was mainly dictated by a crisis connected with the, with the sect of Judaism within the Grand Duchy of Moscow, the Grand Duchy of Moscow at the time, as well by the, by the imperial prestige of Sophia's descendants, once again adding to that whole idea of being the third Roman and the successor to the Byzantine Empire. Dmitri the grandson was put into prison where he would die unmarried and childless in 1509, already under the rule of his uncle. Now moving back onto the government style of Ivan III, the Grand Duke increasingly held aloof from his boyars, boyars, not involving them in anything, and the old patriarchal systems of government seemingly vanished under his reign, as the boyars were no longer consulted on affairs of state. The sovereign became sacrosanct, while the boyars were reduced to dependency on the will of the sovereign. And the boyars naturally resented this resolution and actively struggled against it to little avail. It was also during the reign of Ivan III that the new Muscovite Sudabinik, or law code, was compiled by the scribe Vladimir Gusev. This law code took its roots from older Russian law, including the Ruskaya Pravda, the legal code of Puskov, princely decrees, and also common law, the regulations of which have been upgraded with reference to social and economic changes, of course. It established a universal system of the judicial bodies of the state, defined their competence subordination, and regulated regal fees. The Sudabinik it also expanded the range of acts considered punishable by the standards of criminal justice. It also renewed the concepts of different kinds of crime. And the Sudabinik established the investigative nature of legal proceedings. It provided different kinds of punishments such as the death penalty, flagellation, and etc. in order to protect feudal land ownership. It also introduced certain limitations in the laws of a state, increased the term of limitation of legal actions with regard to princely lands, introduced flagellation for the violation of property boundaries of princely boyar or monastic lands, the violation of peasant land boundaries, and tail to fine. So, as you can see so far, the Sudbenik had very long-lasting and long-reaching reforms. It also even introduced the fee for peasants who wanted to lead their feudal lord, and also established a universal day across the Russian state for peasants who wanted to switch the masters. Something which was new to Russia, as before then, peasants were bound to where they were born that determined who their master was. But under this, peasants could actually change who was their overlord. For all of you just joining us, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be Mystery. We just got done talking about the autocratic form of government that Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, started to establish within the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which would set the foundations for the autocratic rule of government and the absolute monarchy that Russia would come to be known for during the later centuries. So now moving on into the foreign affairs of the Grand Duchy of Moscow. We've already mentioned earlier about his gathering of the Russian lands and its efforts against Novgorod, but it's also important to note his efforts against 
the various khanates within the Russian region. Moscovy has been reject had been rejecting the Tartar yoke during the reign of Ivan III, and in 1476, Ivan refused to pay the customary tribute to the Grand Khan Ahmed. And in 1480, Ahmed Khan organized a military campaign against Muscovy for this disobedience. And throughout the autumn of that year, Muscovy and the Tartar hosts confronted each other's each other on the opposite sides of the Ugra River. But and until the 11th of November 1480, when Ahmed retreated into the steppes. And in the following year, the Grand Khan, while preparing a second expedition against Moscow, was suddenly attacked, routed, and slain by Ivik, the Khan of the Nogai Horde. Whereupon, the Golden Horde suddenly fell into pieces. As I mentioned earlier, the Golden Horde was the creation that resulted from the Mongolian invasion of the Russian region. It was something that the Grand Duchy of Moscow had been a part of until it acquired independence. So, the Golden Horde fell into pieces upon the death of the Khan Ahmed. And in 1487, Ivan took advantage of this and reduced the Khanate of Kazan, one of the offshoots of the Golden Horde, to the condition of a vassal state, th though in his later years it would bro break away from his suzerainty. With other Muslim powers, the Khan of the Crimean Khanate and the sultans of the Ottoman Empire, Ivan had peaceful relationships with, however. The Crimean Khan, Menli I Giray, helped him against the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and facilitated the opening of diplomatic relations between Moscow and Constantinople. Constantinople, where the first Muscovian embassy opened in 1495. The various Christian rulers in the Caucasus also began to see the Muscovite monarchs as natural allies against the regional Muslim powers. And the first attempt at forging this kind of alliance was made by Alexander I, the king of a small Georgian kingdom of Kakheti, who dispatched two emissaries in 1483 and 1491 to Moscow to make this alliance happen. However, as the Muscovites were still too far from the Caucasus at the time, neither of these missions had any effect on the course of events in the region, and in 1488, Ivan also sought gun founders, master gunners for siege cannons, gold and silversmiths, and master builders from Matthias Corvinus of Hungary, who was the son of John Hunyadi, who we've also previously talked about in an episode. And this is just an example of Ivan III's attempts to strengthen the state of Russia, and all, through foreign means, through the importation of foreign specialists to strengthen the duchy. In regards to Nordic affairs, Ivan III had concluded an offensive alliance, alliance with Hans of Denmark, who maintained regular correspondence with Emperor Aximilian III, who even called him a brother. He built a strong citadel as well in Ingria, named Ivan Gorod, after himself, situated on the Russian-Estonian border, opposite the fortress of Narva held by the Livonian Confederation. And in the Russian-Swedish War from 1495 to 1497, Ivan III would success unsuccessfully attempt to conquer Viborg from Sweden. But this attempt was checked by the Swedish garrison of in Viborg Castle, led by Lord Knut Posse. Further extensions of the Moscow Dominion in the gathering of the Russian lands was facilitated by the death of Casimir IV, the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania, who I mentioned earlier, in 1492, where upon his death, both Poland and Lithuania separated from being under the control of the same ruler. The throne of Lithuania was now occupied by Casimir's son, Alexander II, a weak and lethargic prince who was considered so incapable of defending his possessions against the persistent attacks of the Muscovites that he attempted to save them by a matrimonial compact wedding Helena, Ivan's daughter. But the clear determination of Ivan to appropriate as much as Lithuania as possible compelled Alexander to take up arms against his father-in-law in 1499. The Lithuanians, however, were routed at the Battle of Vedrosha on the 14th of July, 1500. And in 1503, Alexander was forced, well, not really forced, but was encouraged to purchase peace by ceding to Ivan the towns of Chernigov, Starodub, Novgorod, 
Seversky, and 16 other important towns. And now we've reached essentially what is the end of the reign of Ivan III. So let's just go back and go over in summary what really Ivan III is known for. Ivan III had basically tripled the territory of his state, ended the dominance of the Golden Horde over the Rus, renovated the Moscow Kremlin, and laid the foundations for the, for the Russian state under Ivan the Terrible. The British biographer Fennell concluded that the reign of Ivan III was military glorious and economically sound, and especially points to his territorial annexations and his centralized control over local rulers. However, Fennell argues that his reign was also a period of cultural depression and spiritual barrenness, as freedom was stamped out within the Russian lands. Due to, mainly due to his bigoted anti-Catholicism, Ivan also brought down the curtain between Russia and the West, and for the sake of territorial aggrandizement, he deprived his country of the fruits of Western learning and civilization, something that wouldn't be returned until Peter the Great when he made efforts to westernize Russia. But now that we're talking, done talking about Ivan III, don't think just yet that we're done with this episode as we still got time left. For today, we're going to do something that we haven't done yet before, and we're going to talk about a second monarch in the same time as we talk about another. Today, we're going to talk about Vasily III, who I mentioned is the successor and son of Ivan the Great, the father of Ivan the Terrible. So Vasily III continued the policies of his father, Ivan III, and spent a majority of his reign consolidating Ivan's gains. Vasily annexed the last surviving autonomous provinces of the, of the Rus, mainly Peskov in 1510, the Oponage of Volokomansk in 1513, and the principalities of Ryazan in 1521, and Novgorod-Seversky in 1522. Vasily also took advantage of the difficult positions of Sigismund of Poland to capture Smolensk, the great eastern fortress of Lithuania, chiefly through the aid of the Lithuanian rebels, led by the Prince Mikhail Glinsky, who provided him with artillery and engineers for the siege of the citadel. The loss of Smolensk was an important injury inflicted by Russia on Lithuania in the course of the Russo-Lithuanian Wars, and only the exigencies of Sigismund compelled him to acquiesce in its surrender. Vasily was also equally successful against the Crimean Khanate. However, in 1519, he was obliged to buy off the Crimean Khan, Memigradai. Towards the end of his reign, he established Russian influence on the Volga, and in 1531-32, placed the pretender Kangali Khan on the throne of the Khanate of Kazan. And in regards to internal policy, Vasily III enjoyed the support of the church in his struggle with feudal opposition, who I mentioned had been revolting since Ivan III's efforts to consolidate power within himself. And in 1521, the Metropolitan Varlam was banished for refusing to participate in Vasily's fight against the Apinch prince, Vasily Ivanovich Shemalyak. The Rukhred princes, Vasily Shusky and Ivan Vorotsinitsky, were also sent into exile, just as an example of how brutal Vasily was in putting down any and all opposition. And the diplomat and statesman, Ivan Berzin, was also executed in 1525 for criticizing Vasily's policies. Maxim Maximus the Greek and others were also sentenced for the same in 1525 and 1531. During the reign of Vasily III, the land ownership of the dentry also increased, while authorities actively tried to limit immunities and the privileges of the boy boyar and the nobility. Yet another example of how the Russian princes sought to bring down the power of the nobles and consolidate it within themselves. In regards to marriages and children, the boyars had suggest suggested that Vasily III take a new wife because his current wife this had been barren and not produced any heirs for him. As such, he divorced her and married the princess Elena Glinskaya, the daughter of a Serbian princess and niece of his friend Mikhail Glinsky. 
Not many of the boyars approved of his choice, as Elena was of Catholic upbringing, but Vasily was so smitten that he defied Russian social norms and even ended up trimming his beard to appear younger, something which was, in the eyes of the Russian boyars, completely out of line. After three days of matrimonial festivity, the couple consummated their marriage, though initially it appeared that Elena was a sterile soul. Solomonia, his previous wife, the Russian populace had begun to suspect that this was a sign of God's disapproval of the marriage. However, to the great joy of Vasily and of the Russian populace, the new Tsarista gave birth to a son who would succeed him as Ivan IV. And however, three years later, his second son, Yuri, was also born, someone who would be important and play a pivotal role during the reign of Ivan the Terrible. However, while oust hunting on horseback near Volokomansk, Vasily felt a great pain in his right hip, the result of an abscess, and he was transported to the village of Kolp, where he was visited by two German doctors who were unable to stop the infection with conventional remedies. Believing that his time was short, Vasily requested to be returned to Moscow, where he was kept in the St. Joseph Cathedral, and by 25th of November, 1533, Vasily had reached Moscow and was asked to be made a monk before dying, and taking on the name Vardam, Vasily would die at midnight on the 4th of December, 1533. And thus is the reigns of both Ivan the Great and Vasily III, two Russian rulers who really laid the groundwork and the foundations for the state that Ivan the Terrible would come to inherit. Join us next week on History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where we return to the land of winter to discuss probably a a name that we've mentioned more than ten times during this episode, Ivan the Terrible.